0: Today's scripture reading is First 1 Timothy 1, 1-7, and 12-20. through 20. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by a commandment of our God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father of Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus, so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has given me strength, that he considered me trustworthy, appointing me to his service. Even though I was once a blasphemer and a prosecutor and a violent man, I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. The grace of our Lord was poured out on me abundantly, along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Here is a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I was shown mercy, so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his immense patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Now the King eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Timothy, my son. I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected and so have suffered shipwreck with regard to the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan to be taught not to blaspheme. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, I want to welcome you all to uh, the service. Happy New Year. First time for me to be back in the pulpit since we uh, got through the holidays. And one of the things that we do, not just during the holidays, but all year long, is I I actually write letters to my girls, and they each have a journal. And uh, the whole vision, the whole goal of this, we've been doing it for a couple years now, is that once they're young adults once they are out of our house, they can look back and see sort of the story of our journey together. What were the things that they were wrestling with, struggling with? How did I engage them on those things? What are the sort of conversations that we had? Basically, in a bounded form, this is a series of letters. And I think it's fitting because we're starting a series today in the book of 1 Timothy. There are actually two letters written from Paul to his spiritual son. Hence the title, Letters to a Son. We're looking at that first letter in First Timothy here. And as some of you know this, that at the beginning of each year, uh, we do a series on the church. Sometimes it's on the local church, meaning our vision, values here at City Church, something peculiar to that. Sometimes it's more broad, thinking through the church universal. This series will be the latter this time. But the whole vision that Paul gives us here in First Timothy is a vision for what the church is intended to look like in a secular society. And I thought, man, for such a time as this, given the events of this past week, more on that later, but given these events and other things, we need to be grounded with a ruthless focus on Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul gets at here in this letter to Timothy. And we're going to see that for the next six weeks, over and over again, that ruthless focus on who Jesus Christ is. And he says in verse 18, contend for the faith, which is going to become the focus of the sermon today. And the question is, how do we do that? How do we contend for the faith well in our private lives, individual lives, as well as publicly and corporately all together as a church family? Two things I'm going to focus on today that Paul talks about. Number one, he says, guard the faith. Absolutely, guard the faith against false teaching, things that are contested narratives, alternative narratives to the true narrative of God's gospel in Jesus Christ. Secondly, then he then says, and then recall your salvation. Remember that it's not just doctrine out there, it's what God has done inside your heart. And what we're going to see is, this is connected, that in order to guard the faith, you have to first remember how Jesus has guarded your faith by bringing you to faith. So firstly here, guarding against the faith. Because we're in the, uh, in 1 Timothy for the first time, uh, by way of background, you need to know that that this is a letter written to Timothy who was a disciple of Paul who was converted under Paul's leadership in Ephesus. And some of you may know this, that that Paul was a missionary, of course, and he was primarily a church planting missionary. He spent several decades traveling around the broader Mediterranean area planting churches, and the area where he spent more time than anywhere else was Ephesus in modern-day Turkey. He spent two to three years there. And it's interesting that at the very end of that two to three-year period, He met with the leadership of the church there. And he said this in Acts chapter 20, where the story is first told, in verses 28 through 30. I want you to hear what he says there. He says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted, things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul was essentially being a prophet here, right? Because the very things that he said would happen did take place. And so Timothy, who was left behind in Ephesus to pastor the church, is now dealing with those wolves. He's dealing with these people. And what's amazing to think about is the very same people that Paul was addressing, some of them may have been the false teachers, I mean, after all, that's why he says, and among your own selves will arise false teaching here. And so it brings us to verses 3 and 4 of our text. Listen now what he says to Timothy. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith when we were first planning City Church 15 years ago, there was a couple that was assisting us. They had actually hosted us at one point doing some stuff in preparation. It was just a Bible study at that point. And, and I remember they, they, as we were announcing that we were going to be moving towards planning the church, uh, they said, we, we're not going to go with you to do this endeavor. I said, why? And they said, well, what we've realized is that you have a vision and you have these values. And, and so we're slightly off from that. And he said, the husband said it's sort of like, a, like these parallel lines. Eventually, you know, they look like they're, they're parallel, but they're not. And over a period of time, that gap gets wider and wider and becomes a wedge. And I think that's a picture here of what, what's going on here because these false teachers, you need to know this, that the false teachers weren't immediately speaking something that's completely 180-degree difference from, from, from God's gospel here. You know this, if you've ever watched a documentary on cults, how cults operate, how they work, is that they begin with telling you something that's incredibly similar to the truth. And over a period of time, they keep taking you further and further away from what is true until eventually it's the frog in the kettle. And you're so far removed now from reality. Reality. And probably something like that was happening here because we're told that there are these speculations, these endless genealogies, probably looking at what we would call the Old Testament genealogies and trying to figure out things in there perhaps and these these different doctrines here. And we didn't have time, for the sake of time, we didn't look at verses 8 through 11, but Paul talks in there about some of that and the different doctrine being that they're teaching that salvation is by the law, not by grace. It's by, by making sure you dot all of your I's cross all of your T's, we might say and forgetting the grace of God, which Paul gets to here in verses 12 and following. And so, so Paul is, is trying to teach Timothy here to watch out. So at this point, let me tell you two reasons why it's so important to have right doctrine here, right? Two reasons. Number one, doctrine, orthodox doctrine, that's taught here in the scriptures, keeps us from going off the pathway. It keeps us from becoming wayward. Probably you have driven along the interstate and you've seen those metal guardrails along the way. And they're not everywhere. And the reason why is because you only place those guardrails in places where if you were to go off the road, something worse would happen. And what happens is as long as you're on the road and you see those guardrails, along the way you'll see that they're dense in the guardrails. Sometimes more than dense, they're mangled, right? You'll see whole sections where... Where it looks like a giant has just you know hit their fist into the guardrail or something like that, and you know what's happened right? You know that a car or a truck actually careened into into that guardrail, but you see that that it's there it's mangled, but the guardrail's still there, and that's because the the car hit it but stayed on the road and and what and what doctrine right doctrine from the scriptures what it's intended to do is to keep us from careening off the road into something worse. And sometimes that's how we experience doctors. Sometimes it will challenge us. It's like we're, we're hitting it. and uh, But it's to keep us from becoming more wayward. And this is what Paul is getting at. They've, they've blown through the guardrails. It's not just mangled, but they blew through them. And they've ended up and they've taken people along with them for the ride. And it's caused destruction in the hearts of God's people. So the first thing that that doctrine does. It's not to be dry, it's not to be boring. Instead, it's meant to bring life by keeping us on the way of life. But then secondly, it leads to that, and that is that that right doctrine, orthodoxy, is intended to grow our love of God. Now, some of you will say, well, I, I think of theology is something that you study in a book, right? Now, first of all, everything we do is doctrine in theology. We just don't realize it, right? When we preach anything that we do here, the prayers, all that is is, is it's given to us in theology. It is doctrine. We just don't realize it. We think of that as something you study in seminary or in a book and think it's dry, it's boring. Far from it. Right doctrine is intended to reflect the character of God. That's how we know. When it truly reflects who God is, it can't help but draw you to the heart of God. Frank Sheed was a writer from the 1940s in a work called Theology and Sanity. He said this, A virtuous man may be ignorant, but ignorance is not a virtue. It would be strange. It would be a strange God who could be loved better by being known less. Love of God is not the same thing as knowledge of God. Love of God is immeasurably more important than knowledge of God. But if a man loves God knowing little about him, he should love God more than knowing more about him. For every new thing known about God is a new reason for loving him. Isn't that beautiful? Now listen to what Paul said. I should have said this earlier, but listen to what he says in verses 5 through 7. This is what he's getting at. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, okay, there's the careening car, desiring, excuse me, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Paul is telling Timothy, he said, what matters here is a love, but not just any love. But a love that comes from a pure heart, from a good conscience, and a sincere faith. And these teachers of the law, as they were called, or they thought of themselves as that, what are they motivated by? Desiring, it says in verse 7 there, desiring to be teachers of the law, of which they are neither, Paul says. They're not teaching either what the law was actually intended to be, nor are they great teachers to begin with, right? Because they're teaching something that's false. And so what does Paul want Timothy to see? says that 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 when we are orthodox in our faith, we'll be driven by love. We'll be driven by a lot. And I tell you, for those of us who are elders here at the church, who are especially teachers, boy, this is a sobering word. What is what is driving us to preach God's word? Well, if we are preaching God's word, then probably what's driving us is a sincere faith. But if it's something else, we'll tend to begin to get on pedestals and preach and teach things that we think are even more important. Certain ideologies. Certain causes. Oh my gosh, I've seen so many sermons. I've watched and I've learned and listened to many sermons over the years that have very little to do with Jesus. And a lot more to do with a pet cause. This is a reminder. This is a reminder to Paul's own heart. now, And certainly to Timothy, my heart, other hearts here at City Church, of what is the whole purpose of preaching and teaching to begin with. In fact, that's what Paul does in verses 18 and 19, and we're not going to read those again. But if you look there, you'll see that, that what Paul warns Timothy about is he says, look, Timothy, just because I'm, I'm telling you this, you need to guard your own heart, watch your own heart, because you can very easily fall off the, way the path as well and, and lead without integrity is what he says there in verses 18 and 19. Listen to what C.S. Lewis said in Mere Christianity. The church exists for nothing else, but to draw men into Christ, to make them little Christ. If they are not doing that, all cathedrals, clergy, missions, sermons, even the Bible itself are simply a waste of time. So There's that, that ruthless focus here. So here's the question I want to ask you at the end, end of this first point. How do you know? How do you know that, that, that you are on the path with Jesus that you are on that road not craning off in the guardrails and so forth and the answer is there's a ruthless focus in your life from when you get up to when you go to bed that jesus is on your lips some of you know that that kirsten and i were supposed to be in japan in november for our 20-year anniversary and COVID had other plans for us and so now it's our 21-year anniversary that we're looking forward to in japan next fall god willing and And if money was no object, we would go to this certain restaurant from a master sushi chef by the name of Jiro, or Jiro, I think it's actually pronounced. And Jiro, you saw this 2011 documentary about it. It's called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. And it's about this master chef. Now, that's a certification process. And he's 95 years old today. And in 1951, so 70 years ago, he was certified a master chef he's been doing the same thing every day for 70 years now it's impossible there are only six seats in this restaurant it's impossible to actually get a reservation you literally have to be a big wig in order to do it in fact uh, former president obama in 2014 he had the opportunity to go there and enjoy Euro's sushi along with the prime minister of japan and he said is bar none the best sushi he's ever had you better believe it for 300 dollars a plate it better be good right uh, but I, I, I thought, oh my gosh, how good would it be? Now, if I went in there, I would say, Jiro, uh, do you have any hamburgers? Uh, w- what about a side salad, Caesar salad? Do you have anything like that? Or, or I certainly would not insult him by saying, do you have anything like Benihana offers back in the States? Right? He would go, that's not Japanese food. He'd say, in fact, in fact, I don't even do a lot of other types of Japanese food. I do one thing, and that is sushi. Sushi. And I think about that that disciplined. We talk about discipleship. That's where the word comes from. That disciplined process. And that is how you know. There's that ruthless focus saying, I'm here to do one thing. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God has placed you on earth. He's given you faith to make him known. To make him known. City Church is all about that. Or at least I hope that's the case. I hope that's been your experience of things here, right? And that's why in in verse 19 he says, because the alternative is to shipwreck your faith. See, this is how I I now want to connect it to the events of this past week. Now, I was working on the sermon on Wednesday and and a pastor friend of mine said, are you watching the news? And I wasn't at the time. I said, right now I'm I'm wrestling with Paul and Timothy. And he said, no, you need to turn it on. And I did. And it was hard for me for the next 48 hours to focus on the sermon, but as I was working through it, I realized, my gosh, there's so much connection here. Because one of the things I saw, and, is, and, and certainly what we need to do, and we did, and many of us have, and, and certainly the world is doing that, is condemning what happened with the assault, the sacking of the Capitol this past week. It deserves condemnation, all the way up to the top. But one thing that I, and I rarely do this, as many of you know, I posted on social media about it, on Instagram. As well as in Facebook, and what I said there is this: that we need to remember as Christians what it is that we are contending for. There is a place for us to offer our political opinion to have differences of opinion on ideology, whether that means towards uh, tending towards the left or the right politically. But the question I asked us as I asked myself is what is it in the day that we 're contending for? you see. After the events of this week, you need to know this, the Lord is still on his throne. And the question for us will be, after all the different social media posts that we make, after all the different conversations and and disagreements and conflicts we get into because of this, what will the church be known for? Will people say, I want to know your God? Or is it, no, I just want to know your ideology? Are we contending for a pet cause Are we contending for Jesus Christ? More than ever before, we need to be grounded with a ruthless focus. How is it possible for us to deal with what happened at the Capitol without being grounded? Without knowing that we need to first contend for the faith and with our faith so that we can present our faith to a world that is scared to death right now. And so I think for such a time as this, we need to hear that. We, we, listen, you may have heard this, that, that, the, that the, uh, the FBI, when they're looking for counterfeit money, you know what they study. They don't study counterfeit bills. And when I first heard about this, it surprised me. I thought, oh, they're looking for the counterfeits. No, no, they, they actually study those experts. They study the actual currency so that when a counterfeit comes along, they know to look for it. They'll see it immediately. And so the question is, no matter what the political events are, no matter what the news is, no matter what is, can you see the counterfeit? Everyone wants to talk about fake news, but the question is, what about the false teaching? And so, and so I, I beg you and I ask you at the end of a very difficult week, how do you want to apply this, God's word? How do you want to contend for the faith between the Sundays as well as on Sunday? But what Paul says here is fascinating because he doesn't go off on an excursus in in verses 12 and following now. He actually is is now saying the reason why I can contend for the faith. The reason why, Timothy, I can tell you to watch out for false teaching of all stripes, whether it be political, social, ideological, whatever it might be, but the reason why I can help you contend for the faith is because I know what, what God has done by contending for the faith within me. And so look now with me at verses 12 and 14, 12 through 14. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, pointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. And right after that, he says this in verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. Don't you see there again that ruthless focus? He's saying, let me get back to Christ Jesus here. Yes, the false teacher. But let me tell you why. It's it's not to look at the counterfeit, but it's to remember the real currency, the currency of our faith, Jesus Christ, he says. And he says, look, this has happened to me, it's personal. But what's fascinating there is that in verse 15 he says, I am the in one translation, I am the chief of sinners. Now, some of you will hear that. In fact, I myself thought the same thing and said, Wait, Paul? Paul the, the greatest of sinners? I mean, I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, if there's someone who deserves to be a saint, it is Paul who's martyred for his faith and did, wrote most of the, of the New Testament and was on all these missionary journeys and yada, yada, yada. And, and so why in the world would he, is this just false modesty? Is this false humility? No. This is reality for Paul and I want you to see why. It's why in verse 17 he proclaims the greatness of the Lord, that he's the high king of heaven. We sang be thou my vision earlier. And really captures well verse 17 there. The adoration and the worship. Why is, why is Paul worshiping God? Why does he break out in worship? Because he sees who he used to be over here and who he's become because Jesus Christ has visited mercy upon him. Remember his story from Acts chapter 9 and 10 that he was an active persecutor of the church and on the road to Damascus on this way to persecute the church further to put to death the saints of God. On the way there, Jesus miraculously redeems his life and sets him on a new pathway with guardrails of orthodoxy. And it's because of that that he breaks out in worship here. You see, here's what I want you to see. I want you to see. In order to to really worship God, you have to see how big he is and how small you are in comparison to his greatness, okay? I... I, um, you know the wellspring material that we did this past fall, I know some of you may be still finishing that up, but you remember uh, Luke chapter seven, where the woman who comes into the house of the Pharisees of Simon there, where Jesus is reclining and having a conversation around a meal, and suddenly this woman who 's probably a prostitute, certainly a woman of the night, we might say, she comes in, certainly a moral outsider, and she begins just to weep profusely, so much so that she takes her tears literally in her hair and the in the perfume, and she she begins to clean the feet of Jesus. So so extravagant is her worship. And, and it begs the question, why in the world is she like that? Why, why is she worshiping Jesus like that? I mean, that's what she's doing. She's worshiping him because she sees the gap, you see. I've said this before as an illustration, that, that no one stands on the edge of the Grand Canyon and says, meh, seen there, been that, done that. No, and you, if you're on the edge of a drainage ditch in your backyard, yes, you will. You'll see a, a couple feet of difference of relief to, topographically speaking between the ridge you're on and the bottom of the drainage. Ditch, you just go, well, "This is not a big deal." And it's too many of us have a God like that. He's the God of the drainage ditch. He doesn't. He's not extravagant to you because you haven't seen the gap. You haven't seen how much. And, and the reason why I say that is that for a lot of us, a lot of us here, we, we say, "Well, my life is is pretty much in order here." And what what God's benchmark is for seeing the gap, seeing the sin, is so much different. The way the way I think about it is like this: Imagine, and a friend, a pastor friend of mine, he said this first, but I like it. I'm stealing it from him. He said, "Imagine that uh, that your life is like a radar screen with a five mile radius, and you know as that arm sweeps around, you see the blips on there, and the blips they represent sin in your life." And as you grow in your faith, you begin to deal with those blips. And as the sweeping of the arm goes around, there are fewer and fewer blips to be seen. You're like, I'm making progress. And just when you think that you've made progress, what does God do? He takes that radar screen and now makes it a 10-mile radius. And suddenly, you see all these different things that you didn't see before. You see? That's why Paul can say, I'm the chief of sinners. Uh, The the radar screen has been, I've seen now... That there's more going on than meets the eye. That's the reason why, by the way, in Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you've heard it said, do not commit murder, but I say to anyone who calls this brother an idiot is guilty of murder. And you say, whoa, that's the standard? Yes, that's the standard. We get so caught up in religious circles with the big things. And we have no idea that what God is seeing is the whole radar screen and in his mercy he allows us in time to see more and more of that and so we begin to repent not of the, simply the big things quote unquote but begin to repent of our motivations doing the right things for the wrong reasons the false teachers right we begin to repent of the things that before didn't catch our attention spiritually speaking now suddenly as we're growing in our faith we see so what what is Paul saying when he says i'm the chief of sinners this is a man who's so matured in his faith he begins to see the brokenness where it truly is. And I think that's the reason why Paul says, I'm a pattern here. You know, here I was a persecutor, an active persecutor of the faith, and look at the mercy. And for most of us in here, most of you hearing my voice and seeing the sermon, we haven't been active persecutors of the faith. But the reason why Paul is saying, I'm a pattern is if, if Jesus Christ can save me, he can save anyone. And so, and so the question I have for you is how, how far is that, that sweep on the radar screen for you? Right? Do you? Do you see what Paul sees? Do you see what we're intended to see by God, that there, there are root systems? Right? The whole reason why Jesus said what he did about idiots is because that's contempt. That's the beginning of murder. And Jesus is not as, as much concerned. He is concerned, but his concern isn't simply for the, the extreme act. It's for the motivation behind the act. It's the stuff that we do with our spouses with our children, with our co-workers, right? It's the contempt that we feel towards ourselves even. That's where the gospel begins. So the question is, is that where it begins for you? But I want you to see what Paul says here. He says, Jesus Christ, Lord, High King of Heaven, begs this question, how does Paul get to that place where he can say what he says? And the answer is, for Paul to say he is the chief of sinners, what he recognizes is that God and Jesus Christ became sin for us. He was the worst of sin, we might say. Second Corinthians 5.21 says this, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. In order for Paul to proclaim how great Jesus is, he had to acknowledge that Jesus Christ because of the will of the Father became sin for him, and for you, and for me. You see, when you, when you see that, that, that the cost of our unholiness, because, because, because God, because he's perfectly holy, can't, can't be in the presence of unholiness. By definition, that's impossible. He had to deal with unholiness. And rather than visiting that unholiness upon us, or on our unholiness that would keep us eternally separated from him, he made a way back to him. And so I want to say this to you, whether you consider yourself religious or irreligious, whatever it might be, we all need the exact same thing. We need someone to cover the gap, and Jesus Christ became sin for you and for me. In other words, he took the curse, he took the judgment of God, so there's no more shame. Therefore there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans 8, 1. That's your story. It's my story if you're in the faith. And so in closing, where does that leave us? I love what Jack Miller, a, a pastor who since died, he said this. He said, he says, Cheer up, your, your sin is much greater than you ever imagined, but God's grace is much greater than you ever imagined. Like that's that's having a great God. It's saying, Man, man, the, the, the rabbit hole of my sin, the rabbit hole of my brokenness, the root systems that make me the person that that sometimes I am. You know, well, God's dealt with all that because he's a great God who's overcome a great gap. The challenge is not to to lessen the gap, it's to see how big the gap is and see what a great God it is that we have who covers the gap with his holiness. So the real test for that for you this week will be how do you treat other people? You know, Augustine put it this way, he said, so God does not choose anyone who's worthy, but in choosing him renders him worthy. I like that little epigram there. And so when you, with humility, see what God has done, it can't help but make you compassionate towards those. And so I want you to think about some of the, some of the players of the drama and the trauma this week. And I want to ask you this question. Do you have compassion for them? That's a real test right now, isn't it? This is where the rubber meets the road. No matter what side of the political spectrum you're on, do you long for them to experience the same mercy and compassion that you yourselves have experienced? See, that's the witness of the church. That's the hope, the longing, is that those like Paul, those like ourselves, might come to know the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. That's the faith worth contending for. And we have the opportunity this week here at City Church to do that. We have the opportunity to do that this coming week, in the weeks to come, and this whole year, in the years to come. So may City Church be faithful, may be orthodox in its doctrine, because that doctrine is first in our hearts, because he has saved us and redeemed us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good word here to your servant Timothy. Timothy was a man who wasn't known for his courage, but needed to leave timidity in order to be true Timothy. And Lord, I pray for us. I pray that we would be courageous in the midst of of great tension, great conflict after a very difficult year. Lord, we would be courageous to contend for the faith in a way that people would say, I want to know more about, about Jesus. Is it true? Could he be my savior? Could he be the redeemer of my heart? Lord, we pray that you would replace the the unrighteous anger with your mercy and grace and compassion in our hearts and our lives. Would you replace the contempt uh, with mercy? Would you give us love that comes, that issues forth from a, a pure faith, a sincere heart, a good conscience? Lord, I, I pray for our church family scattered right now in our homes. Lord, have mercy upon us. May we proclaim you your greatness this week. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.